We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app welcome back it is hardline here on news radio 930 wben joe beamer and brenda alacy with you for another hour or if we are to be Specific, another 51 minutes in 30 seconds. Joining us this segment is the CEO and president of Catholic Health, Mark Sullivan. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Joe and Brenda. How are you today? We're doing well, Mark. Doing well. Uh, Just uh, to start things off, a general update. Where is Catholic Health and COVID right now? Sure. Well, first, Joe, and Brenda, I'd like to start every conversation. I want to thank all the healthcare heroes at Catholic Health within Western New York and, of course, across the nation. They've been at it for over a year, and we're really blessed to have such caring people working with us. Well, for a Catholic health standpoint, we are uh, finally below uh, 100 COVID patients in our facilities uh, as of this morning, and uh, also that includes our COVID-only nursing home out in the South Town. So we continue to see a decline in COVID admissions. Uh, as you know, in the county, we continue to see a decline in COVID positivity. Uh, we're cautiously optimistic, but we need to wait and see uh, where, where the patterns tend to go. Mark, does that uh, give you some confidence to open up uh, visiting hours at your facilities for people who want to see their loved ones and spend a little time with them? Absolutely. Uh, You you know, Brenda, that's a great point. Uh, A year ago, I think it was actually March 15th, you know, we made the decision before it was required by the state to close the visitation just to protect our workers as well as to prepare for the surge that was to come. And uh, one thing we know, we put the patients first all the time, and it's been gut-wrenching for families not to be around not only patients in the hospital, but also uh, uh, residents in nursing homes. So we uh, will continue with our safety precautions at our facilities like we did when we opened elective surgeries. Uh, We'll continue to follow the guidelines from New York State, but we're very, very happy to be able to support the families in this community with something I know they're longing for, and that's to be able to spend time with their family members. Mark, I know uh, for maternity patients, uh, the guidelines have been a little bit different. Can you update folks on what's happening with uh, expectant moms? Yeah, I I believe, I don't have uh, great detail on that, Brenda, but I I believe that expected moms uh, um, are allowed to have um, uh, a partner or someone uh, with them or in waiting. Um, I don't have specific details on that, but um, there's a couple reasons for that, because if they're in the room uh, during the delivery, uh, that could be a concern. And we're trying to protect not only the mom and the baby, but the the, uh, the, the partner or the family member, the husband, um, and the care worker. So I can get more detail on that. I don't have that top of mind. Mark, where um, Catholic Health and COVID vaccines, now I probably should have brushed up a little before uh, the interview, um, but where are you guys, do you guys have vaccines and are you getting vaccines? Sure. Uh, good question, Joe. So uh, where we are now is Catholic Health has vaccinated over 15,000 
healthcare workers, 1A people, meaning uh, frontline workers, essential workers that we've been categorized to have to vaccinate according to New York State guidelines. So we've been able to, to do that. Uh, recently, uh, we've received vaccine uh, through our uh, pharmacy at Catholic Health. We've been able to do a, a few what we call um, like mobile units to vaccinate um, other populations. And so, uh, as we know from New York State, uh, the first eight weeks of the vaccination effort was for the frontline warriors I mentioned at the top of the call here. Uh, uh, they need to be protected to protect us, and that's what we've been focusing on. I'm proud to say Catholic Health has over 72% of its uh, healthcare workers uh, vaccinated at this time. And we continue to work uh, with the others because of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, we're trying to put out uh, public service announcements, uh, educational opportunities to talk with each individual to try and uh, extend that from seven, increase that from 71 to 72%. Mark, I, now I don't want to get too negative, but you know, with, with uh, limited visitation and with vaccinations, I just want to know your opinion. Obviously, this is opinion, no one can see the future. Is in your opinion that we won't have to go back to the strict COVID rules for hospitals again, looking into the future? Uh, I, you know, I, I would say this, Joe, is that if you compare it to last year, last year at this time, no one knew what COVID, well, they knew what it was, but no one knew what the trajectory would be. No one knew how it would be spread. So we didn't even know about masks. Last year, none of us were wearing masks. Last year, we were visiting everybody. There was nothing. So we didn't have any data. So now that we have data, we need to understand a couple of variables, Joe. We don't know what the trajectory is for COVID. We don't know what the variants are for COVID. Uh, just recently, in the last uh, 48 hours, there's been more reports um, on uh, national publications about, you know, if we don't get to herd immunity soon enough, then uh, the variants of COVID could end up um, uh, spreading uh, more more readily or more throughout the communities and throughout the nation and the world. So, you know, Catholic Health prides itself on being, I guess I would say, in the ready um, and preparing, and that's kind of what we did when we opened the first uh, and only COVID-only hospital in the nation and COVID-only nursing home, because we just need to be ready. So the tight guidelines and the, the, the tight um, constraints, Joe, I think um, are also based on, as we learn more information, we can change our course. It's like anything else that's new, uh, and that's kind of what happened. I think we had to go to the extremes we did last spring because we didn't understand um, how it was spread. We didn't understand how many people would get it. And now I think there'll be almost like a, I would call it more of a, um, a dimmer uh, switch as opposed to a switch where you can regulate uh, patterns of visitation, you can regulate things in the economy differently because now we have better information and most importantly, uh, we have better testing. And I'll get to that in a minute when we get to talk about that. Mark, go ahead. Please uh, let us know about the testing process. And then I have a question about your frontline workers. Sure, absolutely, great. So I, it's really it's really important to go back a year ago, and I think this is this is an important point. A year ago, there was no testing in Western New York, and and by April fourth, Catholic Health was fortunate enough to get rapid tests, and we were able to test a significant number of uh, employees and residents in our nursing homes. And for that reason, by the time we were done in 24 hours, we really represented 30 percent of uh, the, all the testing in Erie County just by the the little testing we did at Catholic Health. When you look now in the, in the hundreds of thousands of tests that have been done, now we can kind of see where the hotspots are. We can do uh, contact tracing audits. So, Joe, to your point, and Brenda, uh, with testing, I think we're able to kind of um, address COVID in a different way as opposed to uh, being reactionary. And I think that's what we're seeing across the world and across the nation where they can go in and, and address hotspots. So that's what makes it different than last year. 
Uh, Mark, I, I really commend you for always uh, praising your healthcare workers at the top of any interview. It's always nice to hear from the big boss, and uh, I'm sure that those folks and their families appreciate your appreciation of what they do day in and day out. I've often said there's no way I could work in a hospital. I, I give these folks so much credit. Uh, the stress alone uh, is, you know, inherently there, and then dealing with a pandemic on top of it. What you mentioned, though, about uh, some reluctance on the part of some staff members about getting the vaccine. Uh, has that been difficult for you to um, deal with patients who say, look, I don't want to have anybody treat me who hasn't been vaccinated? Is there any has there been any blowback? Uh, no, let me let me go back. Thank you for your compliment, Brenda, too. And I got to say this word that's probably rarely used on your show. <laughs> um, I love the workers at Catholic Health. I get emotional when I see them working. Um, in a setting where they're caring for people, putting their, their lives in harm's way. That's why we invested so much in PPE. Uh, we, we spent millions of dollars, $20 million in PPE and testing. Uh, we, we, I, I love them. And the work they do, and I'm talking about in the nursing homes, the same nursing home workers that were going in, getting ostracized by politicians and the media because they thought the spread of COVID was because of them. These people are true heroes without capes. And, and every time I see them, uh, when they're dealing with, when we have physical therapists sign up uh, to work the morgue at a hospital because they want to do what they can do to help, that, that makes me come to work every day. So healthcare workers are uh, amazing. So let me get to your question. Vac the vaccine protects the individual. The individual's protected, meaning that, that the symptoms and the potential uh, devastating outcomes are reduced by the vaccine. It doesn't spread, it doesn't stop the spread of COVID. So we still need to have the, the personal protective equipment in place. Uh, we still care for patients as if people weren't vaccinated. We have not let our guard down in that, in that effect. In fact, when we started dealing with COVID, we created, the, as I said, the only COVID-only hospital with zones. Uh, we had specific training. We had PPE buddies all to protect the patients and our associates. We even had hotel rooms free of charge for any associates that didn't want to go home. So it's, we're still doing the same rigor around preventing the spread. It's just the vaccine now is, I guess I would say, armament for the troops as opposed to um, uh, preventing uh, the spread. And that's really important to know with any disease, any variant. That's why we uh, are really focusing on that. It's a very important distinction. Uh, there, it, we've talked to you in the past, Mark, about uh, how important it is to wear masks, and yet there are still anti-maskers out there. And since we last talked, there's been a suggestion uh, by Dr. Fauci to double mask. Are any of your personnel uh, double masking, and do you think that's a good idea? Well, I think when you think of it, um, when Dr. Fauci is speaking, the typical American is wearing a cloth mask or what they would call like a, a non-medical mask, those blue masks um, that you can buy in pharmacies and stores. Those aren't... Um, what I would call uh, medical grade, and I put that in quotes, Brenda. When you look at the N95s uh, that are being worn, those are fit tested. So they basically take a bonnet and put it over your head, and they um, and they, they test your sense of smell. If you can smell something, there's a seal broken on those masks. So the, that no one, not many people are wearing um, N95s. The only person I've ever seen on TV is Sanjay Gupta in his CNN commercial at the end. He has that blue mask on, which you know those are for the bedside. But uh, we, we're still doing that in our nursing homes. Our staff wear KN95s, which is an industrial version. It doesn't have the coating on the outside. Uh, we've upgraded that from the regular surgical mask. So in the public, um, you know, you, 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 you could double mask based on what Dr. Fauci says. But in the healthcare setting, you know, depending on the environment, uh, that, that's, that's how we're dealing with, uh, with the masking. 
There's also a lot of talk, Mark, about um, drugs like remdesivir and convalescent plasma as they relate to treatment of COVID-19. When you talk to the physician members of your hospitals and nursing homes, uh, do they get many questions about alternative therapies? And do you have any opinion on whether those uh, might work down the road? Yes, uh, we definitely do. And I think, you know, one of the things I should say at the top of the hour, too, is it, it's just um, the other emotional roller coaster I go on is knowing the devastation that the COVID has caused to families and, and death and dying and all age groups. And and uh, and one of the things that comes up at the end of life is, you know, everyone wants to do everything they possibly can for their loved one, and, and, and they should any way they can. And at Catholic Health, we really rely on the incredible physician leadership we have, um, the due diligence around uh, efficacy of drugs, uh, clinical studies, um, applying it for each individual patient, because until there's specific science that speaks to the efficacy of a drug in a consistent manner, we're really relying on our, our healthcare providers and our medical staff to really make decisions uh, based on the patient, uh, based on the situation, the clinical uh, status of that patient, comorbidities, all those things. So, you know, we want to we want to be smart about uh, using things. We want to be smart about meeting the patient or family where they are and, and, and with hope. Uh, but not false hope, because every patient can respond differently to clinical trials, and we want to make sure that there's not um, a sense of uh, certainty um, until that has been proven uh, over time. Mark, you talked about tests earlier in the uh, earlier in the hour, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, obviously vaccines are the golden ticket, right? Hopefully, we can get vaccines to that magic number uh, that Dr. Russo and Dr. Fauci have been talking about, and we can get back to a sense of normalcy, hopefully by the summer. Um, but do you think tests? play just as important of a role in, yep. in defeating COVID so, you know, people aren't in contact with those who are who have COVID and just don't know it? Do you think that can be just as beneficial as a vaccine? Uh, I think they're complementary, Joe. I'll give you a metaphor. I mean, uh, would you rather have a smoke detector going off or prevent a fire? So the smoke detector is really testing, and you can figure out where, what zone the smoke detector is going off. You can run to that. You can send the fire department to the first floor of this apartment building. So it's almost it's, it's telling you something is happening, right? So the vaccine, in a way, two, two things the vaccine will do. Vaccine will protect the people, but it will also prevent the virus from spreading and mutating into different variants. So I think, I think they're complementary. So I think when you think of a war, I, I view it, I view this as a war, of course, and I think I'm on my 365th day of this war. Um, but the bottom line is the testing was kind of telling us where to put resources. And now the testing is still used for that advanced work in a, in a war setting, but it's also being used to see how are we doing with herd immunity? How are we doing with populations that may have been missed, like the black and brown communities uh, that have been missed during COVID that we must, must, must get vaccine to because um, there's significant disparities in those communities. So I think it's complementary uh, to each other. The testing now will move from kind of spotting where the smoke or the fire is, Joe, to kind of saying, okay, how are we doing? What populations, um, are there any um, uh, uh, brush-ups or, or startups of new fires or smoldering? And that'll be important. And then the vaccine on top of that will just kind of let us allow us to shut this down um, in, in, a, in a good way um, over time. The, the war analogy, I think, makes a lot of sense for everybody, Mark, but especially for those folks on the front lines, your staff and uh, your management team, you, of course. Uh, what sort of mental health counseling do you make available to folks who work at Catholic Health? Absolutely. Uh, another good question. I, a couple things, I'd say. Um, there's not a healthcare worker I've met in my 27-year career that goes to school to see death and dying every day. 
they go to save lives. So as we're on the journey, you know, like I said before, the healthcare workers are so resilient, but it is taxing. So in the beginning, what I asked my team to do, and this is a little soft, but hang in there for hardline, um, is I said, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be a challenge. We need to memorialize this. So I had our media team go out, and they took hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And we actually reached out to Andre Day's manager, and we got permission internally to use the song Rise Up. And we created an inspirational video that's only internally use only for our associates to see the great work they've done. And that resonated with them, and uh, the response was overwhelming. Then what we do at St. Joseph's, the only COVID-only hospital in the nation, um, we were under leadership of retired Admiral uh, Rebecca McCormick-Boyle. We wanted the associates to know that, yes, there's death and dying around, but there's also a lot of a lot of wins, a lot of lives that were saved. So the staff came up with a playlist at St. Joseph's Hospital where every time someone was discharged out the front door, it was played throughout the whole hospital. Don't stop believing, staying alive, here comes the sun. And that gave that ray of hope. Now, those are things that are a little soft. When you move into mental health, you know, nurses at the bedside, uh, therapists at the bedside, physician at the bedside are trained to fight through everything. But we need to be there for them. So what we did right out of the gate was we created a resiliency program. Uh, we hired over 100 chaplains, social workers, mental health experts that could either deal one-on-one -on -one with any individual, free of charge. There's no cap on it, and there's no time frame on it. I just said we need to do this. And uh, they're doing virtual visits. There's been well over 3,000 visits, um, either virtually um, or in person. We had chaplains and social workers and mental health experts in the red zones. Those are the most vulnerable zones, as well as in the green zones. Uh, we also did reach out um, to family members uh, because, remember, you're talking about superhero moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers and aunts and uncles that go home to their families, and they have to care for them, too. So I, 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 we're doing our best. I'm sure we're missing some things. Uh, we have what's called resiliency cards where we go around with literature, information, um, Grubhub gift cards, anything we can do. But everyone has their own tolerance uh, uh, for um, the stresses of this. And we find a lot of inspiration, uh, quite honestly, in our faith. Uh, we're a faith-based ministry. Uh, we know our mission is a higher calling, and we know that's what we're here for. And the irony of it, uh, Brenda, is that over 170 years ago, Sister Ursula Mattingly came to Buffalo during the middle of the cholera outbreak. She was called to Buffalo because there was no organized hospital. Cholera outbreak in Buffalo. She goes door-to-door -door and raises $5,000 and buys a school and opens Sister's Hospital, the first hospital in western New York. If she could do that with no internet, no MBAs, no PPE on her face, you know, we got to step up and figure it out. But we also know we need to be there for our associates at every moment. And, and, and there's a lot of pride involved in healthcare and the workers at the bedside. And, and we want to make sure we're looking for the signals, the signals of um, not despair, but the signals of maybe hopelessness, or I could have done more for that patient, or I can't take this anymore. But we have to respect the dignity of each individual and meet them where they want to be met, figuratively, literally, and when they want to be met. So we can't force things on them, but we're committed to being there for them. You know, there's not much good that comes out of this pandemic, Mark, but I think the fact that you can destigmatize uh, the need for mental health or reaching out for mental health counseling is a good thing. There's nothing wrong. In, in fact, in my opinion, strong people seek help. Do you find that that's the case uh, when you talk to your associates? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we're a little bit over, over time with this quote, but I think, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther King, but, you know, faith comes when you step on the stair, but you can't see the staircase. <laughs> um, and I think 
we're really rooted in faith and and I think that's kind of what we're all about and so um I just think we need to continue doing what we can do for our associates and our leadership team too, because remember it's, it's all of us. It's our board of directors that has reached out the donations that they've made in time, talent, um, services, uh, have been incredible for our staff and, and showing up at hospitals to just to, to thank them. I think that's, that's really helpful for them too. So, um, you know, when this started, we said to our team, you know, we don't know what path it's going to go on, but to go with faith, but also to realize this is a marathon and not a sprint because everyone was all anxious. When we started the St. Joseph Hospital, Brenda, we said, um, I think it was St. Joseph's Day, ironically, we said we're going to convert St. Joseph's to a COVID-only hospital, and, and we did that in 10 days. By the next day, we had 175 volunteers. I get a little emotional here. By the following Monday, we had 1,100 volunteers from around the, around the country and around the wow. nation, uh, traveler, traveler nurses that came to Buffalo, and they didn't want to leave. Uh, they had a gap year in their medical school, and they came and worked for uh, for us for uh, for a few months and said that um, quoting them we've worked in a lot of hospitals throughout the country uh, but by far Catholic Health has been uh, the most organized which we're still working on that and put, I felt the most protection working at Catholic Health which we still have a long way to go but it was good to hear that from an outsider as well Mark Sullivan president and CEO of Catholic Health thank you so much for joining us this morning yeah, thank you, Joe and Brenda. God bless and enjoy the sunshine here in Buffalo. Thank you, you too. When we come back, Brenda sat down with Tyler Cox. He was Rush Limbaugh's last program director before he went national. We will hear that when we come back. It's Hardline on WBE. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. And welcome back to Hardline on this Sunday morning. Brenda Alacy with you. And what a pleasure it is to talk to Tyler Cox, who is in Arlington, Texas. Tyler spent more than 40 years in radio and was Rush Limbaugh's program director at KFBK in Sacramento from 1985 to 1988. Tyler, welcome to Hardline. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Before we get into our conversation uh, about Rush Limbaugh's passing and his legacy, uh, I know that you're based uh, just outside of Dallas, and you certainly have been dealing with all sorts of inclement and unusual weather for Texas. 
How are things going now uh, that things are starting to clear up a bit for you, Tyler? Well, things are certainly improving. You know, for a while we thought we'd been transported to Buffalo. I, our, <laughs> our winter, our winter the last few days has just been the strangest thing. Uh, at our home, we uh, we lost power Sunday evening. It came back on intermittently Monday. Cut in and out for the next two days, and uh, as of I guess it was Wednesday afternoon, we got power back. We're still under a boil water order because so many of the water pumping stations took damage. Uh, because of the freeze and so we're not out of the woods yet but uh, things are improving it's uh, moved above freezing it's uh, sunshiny so we're we're seeing things moving in the right direction but it's certainly been a, a tough experience uh, for for thousands of, of Texans all across the state I I can't recall ever seeing when there was a a winter warning that covered the entire state of Texas at one time that's just just phenomenal uh, but uh, so many people are still without power. It's starting to slowly cycle back. Uh, now, now a lot of questions are being asked about what is referred to in Texas as ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. It's the organization that oversees all of the power grid throughout the entire state. A lot of questions being asked about lack of preparation, lack of warning. So things are about to heat up in the Texas legislature about that. Yes, in more ways than one. And you know, not only are we dealing with an unprecedented pandemic, now Texas and other parts of the country are dealing with unprecedented winter woes and blackouts and everything associated with that. In Buffalo, certainly we get a lot of snow and cold, but we have the infrastructure and the uh, the practices in place to deal with it. And I think it makes it all the more difficult for folks in your neck of the woods, Tyler, who are not used to this type of weather and how to handle it. Well, certainly the state of Texas and, and individual communities and cities they can't justify the expense involved in the amount of snow removal and, and ice treatment facilities that, that you guys enjoy in Buffalo because they would sit idle for sometimes two or three years. So when these things happen, we, uh, we just have to endure it. We've never had to endure anything like this, at least in the last 30 years. And it's been, uh, it's been quite a learning experience. Well, Tyler, uh, I, I wish you well in that regard. And uh, I, as I mentioned, you were Rush Limbaugh's producer back in the late 80s. And Rush passed away, as we know, at the age of 70 from lung cancer. Uh, word came down from his wife, who actually announced it on his show on Wednesday. Uh, I was so intrigued when I read about your connection to him. Uh, can you tell us how you first heard about Rush or was first introduced to him? And what was he like as a younger broadcaster back some 40 years ago? Sure. Uh, I actually was Rush's program director at the radio station. He had uh, preceded me at KFBK by a few months. I came on board in the summer of 85 as the news director and a few months later took on the mantle of program director as well. So at that point, I became Rush's manager. Being there as a co-worker for a few months gave me a chance to, to get to know him uh, and, and appreciate what he, was, what he was about. When I became his program director, the smartest thing I did was not screw him up because, you know, us program directors are, are want to meddle and give advice and change how hosts do things. I, I didn't see the need for that because he was already very successful. The, the one time I, I offered some advice on how to change the show was to suggest that he might consider putting guests on the show. And he said, now, I, why would I do that? This is this is the Rush Limbaugh show. It's about me. It's about my point of view, and it's about interaction with our callers. And it had certainly been working very well. And I thought, 
you know, why should I screw this up? So uh, he went on and, and did his show as, as he had been doing. We had a very good working relationship. He was uh, a very personable guy, a private individual. Uh, he, he kept to himself a lot, didn't engage in a lot of the after hours, let's go grab a beer kind of uh, activity that a lot of coworkers would do from time to time. Um, but he was uh, he was cordial to his coworkers. His, his desk was right outside my office and right in the middle of the of the newsroom, which was sort of ironic when you think about his point of view about uh, a lot of people in the news business. But he got along well with everyone. He was uh, appreciated for what he did, and you got a sense that uh, he was he was creating something special and took the city of Sacramento by storm. He, he became a colossal hit. At that point, did you realize that the potential was as great as it could be? Um, obviously, you saw something in him that was different and turned out to be quite iconic. But did you think he had that kind of potential even then in the late uh, 80s? I don't think any of us knew that kind of potential existed for anyone. Keep in mind that in the, in the you know, mid to late 80s, uh, talk radio was personified by Larry King overnight Sally Jesse Raphael doing love advice or relationship advice, and Bruce Williams talking about money. No one on a national platform was having any success talking about the issues of the day, much less doing it without guests and just driven upon the individual personality of the talent. And so if I were to tell you that I saw that potential, I'd be lying, and anybody would, uh, because we just didn't know that potential existed. And that's the thing about Rush is that he created an entire industry. When he was approached about doing this national show, it was to fill in for a couple of hours that were going dark on what was then known as ABC Talk Radio. It was an effort by the ABC Radio Network to do a daytime talk lineup, and it was a full variety of different kinds of talk shows, and it just wasn't succeeding. So ABC was about to re, you know, pull back and, and, and dismantle that. And a fellow by the name of Ed McLaughlin, who had been president of ABC for many years, was now independently producing programs, uh, approached ABC with the idea of, I'd like to do this show. Can I have that middle of the day, two hours at that time, uh, time slot? And, and he worked out a deal. And so uh, there we were in, in uh, June of, of 1988 and dealing with the fact that Rush was going to be leaving KFBK and to start this national program that none of us were really convinced would work. None of us had any idea of the potential on a national level. So, uh, so he's, he jetted off to New York uh, in July of 88, started out with uh, the, the way the deal was arranged was he did a two-hour local show for WABC, followed by a two-hour network show on, on, the, on the network. And over the course of the next two years, the word of mouth began to grow, and, and the success stories began to grow, to the point that two or three years later, there was a National Association of Broadcasters conference in Dallas. And all of these general managers from radio stations across the country were coming up to Rush and saying, thank you for saving my radio station. Because AM was already starting to lose the music wars to the FM side. And these operators were struggling to find programming that would work. And Rush's program worked, and it worked from the very beginning. No other individual can single-handedly have had the impact that that man had on AM radio in this country in the mid-80s. Really remarkable story, Tyler. And, and WBEN has been a longtime carrier of Russia's show, uh, noon to three every day, uh, Monday through Friday, with uh, you know the best of on the weekend. So certainly a huge voice in the Buffalo market. 
And he was such an influential voice in Republican politics. Um, I think it's fair to say he was an architect of what today's right wing has become. And certainly uh, always conservative. There was never any doubt that he did not lean any way but to the right. And yet he he was an entertainer too, wasn't he, Tyler? Would you say he was more entertainer or political analyst? Well, in the early days, there was a solid mixture of both. Keep in mind, Rush came out of a background of having been known as Jeff Christie, a rock and roll disc jockey in Pittsburgh. And if you ever go on to Google and, and search for Jeff Christie, you'll come up with air checks of his days as a rock jock, and you'll hear the same kind of patter, the same kind of, of conversation. Phrases like talent on loan from God, uh, with one hand tied behind my back just to make it fair. And, and those kinds of phrases transitioned from his days as being a disc jockey entertainer into a talk show host. In our days in Sacramento, he would do just as much in terms of song parodies and, and comedy and things said for comedic value uh, as he would political issues. But but everything had a, uh, had, had a tinge of political and issue to it. So his comedy was, was centered around conservative values. You know, some folks have asked, you know, did he really believe everything that he was saying? And the answer to that, is, of course, is absolutely yes. He, he would never have taken a position that he didn't believe in. Uh, he believed, as many people do, that you know, the safest defense is always telling the truth. If you start telling a lie, you're going to get caught in it. And, and Rush was always consistent with his point of view. There, there was one time that I recall with a bit of humor, and this was in uh, 92 when Bill Clinton was running for, for president. And Rush goes on the air one day and says, you know, I've been examining it. I've had a change of heart. I now support Bill Clinton. And then opened the phone calls. And, of course, people were calling, like, what have you done? What are you, what are you talking about? And he would say, well, what are you talking about? I didn't say that. And, and for about 30 minutes, this, this stream of people upset with him for switching over to support Bill Clinton. Then he came out of a break and said, all right, what I've done to you is what exactly the, the liberal and liberals are doing, and that is changing their opinions at, at a whim if it suits their need. He says, of course, I still am, am a conservative Republican, but there were people who were convinced that he had somehow melted down and <laughs> had a personality change. Uh, that was the only time I ever recall hearing him do something for shock value just in terms of taking a contrary position. Isn't that interesting how he knew exactly how to push those buttons, Tyler? And, you know, speaking of being honest, he came out and talked quite candidly about some of his own personal struggles. Sure. Uh, certainly the talk about, you know, his opioid addiction, which many think uh, led to the loss of his hearing and uh, his other struggles, too. You know, the one thing that always struck me when I learned about his lung cancer diagnosis uh, for listening to him over the years, he would talk about his formerly nicotine-stained fingers. <laughs> right. And I couldn't help but think about uh, all the years of smoking. And oftentimes you'd see him in publicity photos with a big fat cigar. Uh, did you uh, keep in touch with him? And did, were you aware of some of the health challenges he had? Uh, of course. We, we stayed in touch for, for many, many years. Uh, I will confess that over the last year or so, uh, I did not reach out because he had his own battles to face. And I didn't want to impose on that. So so we, we hadn't communicated for a bit over a year, uh, but all of our communications over the course of the many years was always warm, cordial. 
Um, he, he was very gracious. He and Catherine were to invite my wife and me to his wedding, uh, to Catherine, and, and we saw each other on some social occasions. So he, he was <clears> – <throat> it's very hard still to talk about him in past tense. It, he, he's all – his presence will always be felt in our industry. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, he, he was always a, a gracious, warm, outgoing guy. If you got to know him, uh, you, 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 you met someone who was uh, engaging, personable, with a great sense of humor. You could certainly call him a polarizing figure, I think, with a capital P. And some of his critics talked about how he was nasty to many people and, you know, things like calling Chelsea Clinton a dog and uh, making fun of Michael J. Fox with his Parkinson's disease, perhaps saying that he was overplaying it for the audience. Uh, Countless other things that people have brought up. What was it like for you, Tyler, when he would say things like that? Would you cringe or did you think it was part of his shtick? Did you think that was really what Rush believed? I'm not going to project on what I thought he may or may not have believed in those situations because only he could answer that. Um, I I think it was important for listeners to understand the totality of what Rush was on the air. You know, when when he would start on a brand new radio station, I'm sure that the day that WBEN put him on the air, when he would welcome the station on the air that first day, one of the things he would go through, as he did with every new affiliate, was advise the listeners, take two weeks, listen to the totality of what I'm saying, then make your decision. Don't don't jump to conclusions. Um, and, and I think that the totality of Russia's body of work speaks for itself. As a program director, did it surprise you that he was able to maintain a conversation, a monologue? Uh, obviously, there were some guest interactions with phone callers. But to talk for three hours a day, at least, <laughs> and to do that unflinchingly without any problem filling that time, uh, that's a special gift, isn't it? Oh, no question. Uh, there, there are so many people who are, who are still very talented in this industry but couldn't pull that off. You know, he, he would do that. Uh, and it was always engaging, always interesting. You never felt like he was cycling back and repeating the same thing. You know, when we were in Sacramento, as I mentioned, his desk was, was right outside mine, and this is the pre-Internet days. So he would get to the studio at about 6 in the morning. He would go on the air at 9. But he would have stopped at a, a newsstand in Sacramento and picked up the New York Times, L.A. Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Washington Post, you know, all, all the big national platform newspapers. And he would sit there with a, a razor blade and slice out all of these articles that uh, he wanted to comment on or have observations about. And he would take that pile of newsprint, which he then came to dub the stack of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. into the studio with his ink-stained fingers as well as his nicotine-stained hands. <laughs> and, and he would hold court. Uh, he, he, would, he would bring up these points, and, and he wasn't reading these articles. He was boiling down what the essence of these stories were and giving his point of view on them. Um, And I I will confess, the first couple of times I saw that, I I was just totally blown away. How in the world does this guy do this? And I think it goes back to a phrase he used that some people would, from time to time, be offended by. And that was when he would say, talent on loan from God. Now, there are some people who felt that was irreverent. But if you look at those words on the face value of what they are, he was stating a true fact. You know, you know the talent you have is, is, is a gift from, from God. The talent that, that Rush had was a, was a gift from his creator. And he was a product of a family environment that 
as a child, sitting at the dining room table with his dad and with his grandfather, and hearing these discussions every night on the issues of the day. This was how he was raised. This was how he was brought up. And he had just an incredible sense of, of recall, of ability to condense an issue down to a point where it was understandable. And there, there has never been and never will be again anyone quite like him. I, I've made the comment this week that his passing leaves an impossible void in our industry. Again, thousands of talented talk hosts and, and broadcasters in our business across the country. But no one, no one individual, I feel, will ever have the kind of impact on our industry that this guy did. Uh, there, I think that's so true, Tyler. I mean, that's certainly the consensus from the reaction we've gotten from our audience. How do you ever fill those enormous shoes? Uh, and whether you love them I would, or hate them. I would not want to be the, I wouldn't want to be the guy to try. You know, I know, you, yeah. You know, you know the, the old thing is, you know, you don't want to be the guy who replaced Michael Jordan. You want to be the guy who replaced the guy who replaced Michael Jordan. Exactly. I, I, just, I, I can't imagine uh, who steps into that void. It's a totally unenviable job, and you're so right. I was thinking of that very same analogy. Before we go, Tyler, I wanted to ask you your impressions of watching Rush receive uh, the Medal of Freedom uh, when Donald Trump presented it through when Melania Trump actually put it on Rush at yeah. the State of the Union um, more than a year ago. It was uh, quite a moment for him. It was very emotional, you know, uh, and, and even if he had been given a hint that it was coming because there was discussion about it in the media that day that it would likely happen, still to have that actually happen, you know, he just had announced, I believe it was the day before of, of his advanced stage lung cancer. Um, he uh, His emotions were already, I, I'm quite sure, uh, very taut, very, very keen, and, and to be standing there, sitting there in the gallery uh, in the Capitol and, and have this uh, have this occur, uh, it just had to be emotionally overwhelming for him. And you could see oh, it. You could see it on his face and his wife's yes. face, too. Yes, absolutely. Tyler, Tyler uh, great insight, unique insight, certainly knowing Rush before he, quote-unquote, made it big. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to reflect on your time when you and Rush Limbaugh worked together in Sacramento, California. I truly appreciate it. Enjoyed the time. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you. Stay safe in Texas, and I hope we can connect again down the road. Very good. Thank you.